This is Super Investors in the Art of Worldly Wisdom. I'm Jesse Felder. Object to the test! This show is brought to you by The Felder Report. When I'm not interviewing one of the most interesting minds in the world of finance, I'm doing a ton of reading and research, and I put together some of the best things I find each week into a free Saturday morning email. If you're interested in getting it, just go to thefelderreport.com and click join now right there on the homepage and you'll be good to go. Variant Perception is an investment research firm founded on the idea that man plus machine beats machine or man alone. In an era dominated by passive investing and other purely quantitative strategies with relatively short look-back periods on the one hand, or rampant speculation in meme stocks and other moonshots on the other, nothing could be more contrarian and perhaps more valuable than taking a more thoughtful approach grounded in historical context and driven by tactical tools that have proven valuable through many market cycles. This is precisely the focus of Variant Perception and its CEO, Tian Yang. In this episode, Tian discusses the details of his firm's unique investment analysis framework, and given the apparent paradigm shifts already underway, how it is especially valuable in assessing markets and the economy today. So please enjoy my conversation with Tian Yang. I wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep, and sheep get slaughtered. Tian, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. You know, I'm, I'm excited to do this. I, this is something I've wanted to do since I interviewed Jonathan Tepper. I think it was almost four years ago. It's hard to believe. But uh, I, I've been a big fan of uh, variant perception for a long time. And I'm glad to just be able to have this time to, to really uh, explore what you guys do. Um, you have an especially interesting framework uh, that, that's relevant to the current market, market environment. But before we dig into that, I'm curious to know a little bit more about you and your personal story, Tian. How did you first get interested in finance and markets? Uh, yeah, well, funny enough, obviously, you mentioned Jonathan. I had actually uh, read some of Jonathan's uh, best-selling books when I was still uh, at, uh, at university. Uh, so, you know, things like uh, Endgame, Code Red. Uh, you know, that obviously came out a bit later. So, um, yeah, that, that was kind of the original, very original starting point. And, yeah, and, you know, after that, went into do derivatives trading at Merrill Lynch. Um, you know, I think it was interesting, but I think given all the regulatory constraints at the time, it was kind of a, a shifting industry. And, you know, the opportunity came up to work with Jonathan in 2014, and I essentially just jumped at it. So, yeah, it all kind of ties back to him, really. And, and so was it reading his books that that was the thing that really kind of sucked you in or was there something else you know earlier on maybe that you know uh that that kind of uh drew you to investing in markets uh yeah so um you know i, I did study economics at cambridge although mm-hmm. i think when i first got into it, i was um very much interested on the development side and development economics and the like and um but when you know, uh, at, you know, some of these um, universities, they tend to be targeted by the investment banks and the, the, the investment companies for recruitment. So I remember in the first year, you know, a friend of mine asked me to go along. We did some of these trading simulation games, did some of these M&A simulation games, and we ended up winning, winning a lot of these games. And then off the back of that, got to go, you know, go to London, go to the, go to the head offices, and, you know, you get internships on the back of these events. So yeah, that was kind of the original thing that I think that pulled me in. It was very interesting to kind of participate 
you know, in a lot of these kind of practical, um, I guess you would call it workshops, right, or student sessions. So I think that was a starting point. And Interesting. And start to try and read a bit more widely. I think it yeah. was a pre-FinTwit day, so uh, there weren't that many blogs and things around like there is today. But um, yeah, so you had to probably look a bit harder for information. And so that was kind of how I found uh, Jonathan's books, actually. Well, that, that's funny that you know that it was uh, kind of simulations and games. I, you know, I'm I'm older than you are, and I, when I was a kid, my my dad bought one of the first uh, Apple computers, is Apple IIe. I think this was in the early '80s, and he got a couple of games for it. There, you know, one was called Millionaire, and it was a stock market simulator, the the most boring video game you could ever imagine in your life. It was such a terrible game, but I I played it, and you know, I was like eight or ten years old and i got super interested in the stock market and it's interesting how you know the you know uh, gaming you know it can just kind of get you uh kind of i guess fired up about a lot of this stuff the name variant perception i love the name in one of your recent uh pieces you reference a jeremy grantham quote uh quote market timing is a tag some buy and hold investors use to put down anything that involves using your brain with passive investing dominating the markets today, taking a thoughtful, active approach is about as varied as it gets, right? I mean, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's a little bit like Buffett says. You know, most of the time, the market probably you know is somewhat efficient, uh, but that doesn't mean you know there's an opportunity. And I think a lot of the times, if you're not focused on looking for the opportunities and reacting, then obviously, you know, it's going to slip you by. So. You know, in terms of what we do at Variant, we essentially try to take a, you know, very kind of empirical, you know, data-driven approach to screen for these opportunities as and when they come about. And, you know, given that opportunities don't come along that often for us, I think it's more about just having a, a very broad range of tools and indicators that are looking across, you know, different time horizons from tactical kind of one to three months trading right for to lead the indicators for kind of the six to 12 month business cycle, um, all the way up to kind of capital cycle, demographics, debt and currency cycles that tend to be more, you know, two to three year plus structural views. And so, you know, in, in terms of how we think about the world, it's very much about trying to combine together our mix of indicators across very, very different aspects of investing. And, you know, once you build enough of these models and have enough of these indicators, you end up with you know a pretty rare i think mix of indicators and sometimes things just align and, and big themes come up you know things like the quality super cycle you know a lot of these things are tend to be when suddenly everything aligns um and then the opportunity comes but you know a lot of times obviously it, it's not as clear-cut so yeah clearly yeah. i understand why passive is big but um you know it's probably not as simple as just forget about it Right. Well, you know, it reminds me of, I'm glad you brought up Buffett because one of my favorite Buffett quotes, it's from decades ago. I think this was another quote from the eighties, you know, where he was, he was writing about the efficient market hypothesis and he asked, uh, quote, what could be more advantageous in an intellectual contest than to have opponents who have been taught that thinking is a waste of energy, uh, end quote. And, and so I think today with, with the majority of the market, almost everybody operating as if thinking is a waste of energy. There's a huge opportunity for thinking investors. Um, and so, you know, to me, it's, it's fascinating to, to see how you guys are approaching this. Let, let's, let's start to dig into some of the stuff. You guys are focused on everything from tactical trading to cyclical and structural analysis. 
Can you walk me through how you approach maybe each of these timeframes and how they fit together into a larger framework? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, the 10 second summary in terms of our research philosophy is this idea of man plus machine beats machine. Um, you know, we live in a, a world where increasingly there's a lot more computing power, a lot more data. You know, there's a lot of advances in signal processing, machine learning, and so forth. So, you know, there's a lot of new opportunities that are appearing. And so, you know, that, that obviously increases the potential of what small teams with access to good data can build out. Um, but at the same time, I think that the, the DNA of the, the, the firm and the history of the firm has always been embedded in being students of economic history, um, you know, studying kind of various historical periods and looking for analogies and lessons to be learned. So essentially, when you can combine the two, they kind of make up for the shortcomings of each approach. You know, if you're just a pure quant machine learning, you know, you just take all the data, uh, take all the data and, you know, essentially optimize, you might be missing regime shifts. You know, you might be missing something. You might be overfitting your model. You know, big regime shifts happen, right? You know, some of it might not be in the data. Uh, but equally, obviously, if you're purely, you know, taking more of a uh, kind of non-quant approach, then it's probably sometimes quite hard to control for, you know, internal biases and, and things like that. So I think by taking this man plus machine idea, it kind of hopefully makes up for kind of the the worst uh, kind of issues of either approach. And then and putting them together gives you more of a um, more of a balanced view and helps you really figure out when everything's aligned. Um, so to that end, you know, you, you can apply the same ideas to, not only big picture, what people traditionally think of as macro, right? These big macro cycles, you know, everyone's a lot of these debates about the dollar and so forth. You can obviously apply it to the big picture, but even in terms of business cycles and trading, there's a similar approach because, you know, a lot of times if you just data mine for something, it, it might work, but, you know, is it intuitive? Does it make economic sense? And is that kind of like a fundamental kind of uh, mechanical process that, that results in it working repeatedly over time. So the classic examples we always give is, you know, when you're looking at the economy and the business cycle, it's very, very important to focus on what are leading parts of the economy uh, rather than pay attention to, you know, data like GDP or, you know, employment numbers or any of these things that typically make the financial news. Um, just, just because, you know, if you think about how things fundamentally work, there's always a sequence in which things should happen. Uh, things like building permits should always have a turning point before construction activity starts. Uh, you know, companies typically don't lay off workers at the first time of trouble, right? You know, the first adjustment they might do is with their temp workers. And then eventually, if things get so bad, they might start laying, up, uh, laying off permanent workers. So, you know, this kind of leading lagging idea exists across um, lots of bits of the economy. So often, you know, it probably does take a little bit of thinking, you know, you know the man part first to try and understand fundamentally how things work and the linkages and then once you have that you can then zone in on like a hopefully a superior set of data inputs then you can apply all your kind of uh you know tech statistical techniques or quant techniques to come up with a better model uh in a way it's almost like starting with a, a prior for how the works right that that's strongly driven by kind of more manual work and then once you have that prior to use the uh the kind of more quant approaches to kind of update that over time Interesting. And, and I'm, I'm, I want to dig into kind of each of these 
time frames because I, I find that you know you mentioned FinTwit, and I, one of the things I think on Twitter is you know the, maybe the biggest waste of time is you have somebody who's a tactical trader arguing with somebody who's you know more focused on the business cycle. <laughs> you know, like you guys could both be right. You know, it doesn't just you're focused on different time frames and different things. Um, so you know, I think. Being sure that you you understand, you know, and appreciate which of these kind of things you're focused on, structural versus cyclical versus tactical, I think is is critical. But let's let's kind of dig into the tactical side of things for a minute because uh, I appreciate the fact that you have so many interesting indicators on on this uh, level because uh, you know. I think most people appreciate that we're in a bear market, uh, but sentiment, you know, back in June got so negative that the setup for a, uh, like a tradable rally was 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 getting very strong. And so, I you know, and, and I know you guys were appreciative of that. Uh, how do you guys approach uh, the tactical side of things? I know you look you focus on trend and sentiment. And even historical price analogs. Can you share some of the kind of the the, the details of the components there? Uh, yeah, sure. So, um, you know, in, in a nutshell, there's two frameworks we use for tactical trading. So one is essentially the one zero buy sell signals. So they are obviously very specific um, kind of events with set triggers that go off. So they are kind of you know the alerts, if you like. And then what we have something. Uh, what we would call a tactical context. So this is where the, the sentiment trend and the analogs come in. So they're kind of indicators you can generate a number for every day. And they essentially like a, a percentile approach to give you a sense of what the forward projected return is given you know, the current readings for sentiment, trend, and, um, and analogs. So trend is kind of the more obvious one, right? Where, where you know, ultimately the, the price, whether it's going up and down, you know, there's different ways to define it, but usually it's, it's fairly easy. You know, people can use moving averages or, you know, new highs, right? Um, you know, I remember reading um, like a very famous quant book on trend following. Ultimately, you know, when you do the back test, it's, you know, the simplest, um, the simplest way of defining it, which is like a, a 30-day or 90-day new high, ended up being one of the best performing yeah. <laughs> things for trends. So, you know, trends probably the easiest one. It, it doesn't matter too much how you define it. Right. Um, sentiment's a bit trickier because obviously most people are judging sentiment by looking at surveys and the like. Um, one approach we've taken is um, we're somewhat inspired by kind of the original um, Kahneman work on how people experience uh, loss aversion. Um, and his key point was that essentially at the end, what you remember is kind of the peak emotion in the middle and obviously the end result. So obviously, as it applies to an investor or trader, it's the, it's the return you made at the end, but also how much did you give up in the middle or did you experience a big drawdown? Because obviously if you made zero at the end of the period, but you survived a huge drawdown and came back, you probably feel a lot better than if you know, it was a zero, but you, know, you were up 100% and now you're back to flat. So you know, that's one of the ways we track sentiment by tracking um, kind of the end period return over the max favorable move in the middle and the max um, kind of drawdown in the middle and just applying it over different kind of uh, trading periods. Uh, you know, that, that can, at least that's one way to quantify it. Uh, something else we do is we're extracting uh, kind of uh, implied sentiment data by looking at option markets. So things like SKU, uh, term structure, looking at the price of kind of, you know, digital options, that price crashes. So again, that's a more quantifiable way um, to at least get a sense of sentiment um, to allow you to compare. Um, and then finally, on the analog thing, I think the, the, the slightly better innovation I think we're doing is um, 
we're not just data mining in terms of the exact same price patterns versus history. I think a big problem with technical analysis um, is that things tend to happen at different speeds. Uh, but you know, when we go on Bloomberg or you know Google Finance or whatever, and we pull up a price chart, obviously the time axis is usually fixed, right? You're you're forced to do analysis in fixed units of time, and so you can apply some newer techniques from signal processing, things like dynamic time warp and the like, to give you a lot more flexibility in terms of your your time horizon um, to look for similar kind of sequencing rather than you know exactly the same shape, and so th this gives you kind of much better historical analogs for price actions um, rather than just being a simple kind of um, straight kind of um, uh, a pattern fit. Um, so, you know, so that, that's kind of the innovation where by doing a time warp, you can hopefully find slightly better um, historical analogies. And then you can use that to kind of, you know, find uh, what the expected forward return is based on the historical patterns analyzed. It's actually pretty cool, right? It's kind of a similar um, algorithm that people use in speech recognition. Um, so, you know, wh when you talk to Siri, you know, we'll have different accents, speak at different speeds, right? So essentially what Siri ultimately has to do is take the, the different kind of patterns of sound waves, but essentially use this algorithm to figure out if ultimately it's the same kind of sound, sound wave, right? And it'll recognize it. And so, you know, obviously you can apply this, um, apply this to, to financial markets as well. Um, I think we originally started doing this because we wanted to actually backtest different technical analysis patterns to see if they actually were statistically meaningful. Unfortunately, I think once you try them more broad enough uh, series of stocks and prices, it's not statistically meaningful for a lot of common patterns. But by by trying the technique, I think we found it's actually not bad as you know for finding analogs. Because um, obviously, when you look for analog analogs, you can also have a, a measure of fit. And surprisingly, if you get a really really good measure of fit, you can obviously go back and have a look at the his uh, you know the kind of macro historical context, and that often gives you a lot of pretty good clues. For, for kind of, you know, how, how things might play out, what do the signposts look for, uh, for, for kind of today. So, so hopefully that gives you a sense of how we think about um, kind of trend sentiment and, um, and, and analogs. Yeah, I'm especially curious to hear you discuss the price analogs because I know it's something that, uh, you know, it can be heavily criticized by, you know, uh, non-active <laughs> investors. But, you know... I've always been curious about price analogs, especially when they have a uh, when they they rhyme with history, not just in terms of price, but in terms of the the economic background or or whatever. Because I think it's something that you know has been a very key component to some of the most successful hedge fund managers out there. I mean, obviously, Paul Tudor Jones famously profited from the '87 crash by using the 1929 price analog. I've talked with Tom DeMarc about this, who, you know, integrates anal price analogs into his work when he's, you know, was working with Steve Cohen and, you know, some of the most successful hedge funds, you know, uh, on the planet. And, you know, price analogs get a really bad rap. But I, I think, you know, if, if you're not just using them as a pure, you know, uh, hey, hey, market did this, you know, whatever it is, 40 years ago in isolation and saying, I expect it to do exactly this in the future. You know, you're using it in a, in a more thoughtful way. I think it can have terrific value. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And you know, as you said, again, this the key is to apply it in a more broad sense. So you end up build. You know, it's kind of the mosaic, right? And you end up actually building a good picture. So we've we also apply the technique to find um, the appropriate macro kind of historical context. So 
And this was essentially how we found a historical roadmap early in the year for how this year would play out, which we said was essentially like um, 1984, which was kind of the last time you had bonds and equities crash at the same time. You know, that was like still the Volcker Fed. You know, he did like a big front loaded 100 bit hike at the time. You know, there were concerns about inflation coming back, even though Volcker originally broke the back of inflation in the 70s. You know, it was starting to tick higher. You know, growth was slowing down. And, you know, so it, it's actually pretty helpful that when you run all this, it, it can give you a historical period and you can go and actually do some and look into it. Right. And so that's what we did. And you end up seeing these really interesting articles at the time as well. You know, it's very similar to today. Right. I think, you know, I remember there was some Washington Post articles talking about where, where again, Volker was just like, we're going to keep hiking until it's done. Um, and then there was some op-ed pieces talking about, you know, that the central banks need to like intervene essentially to save equity. <laughs> like, you know, like, they didn't call it the fair put back then, but you know, you can see the similar sentiments. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's um, it it, it can be pretty uh, it can be pretty interesting as kind of one of the uh one of the kind of more advanced techniques to try and improve on some of these processes people have been doing um for a while to find good uh, kind of historical analogies. Right. And by the way, just on on your um the mark point actually, I think we're we're definitely uh, big fans. Um, his stuff actually works. Uh, at least in the past thing I've done, I think works pretty well. And um, and that would obviously fit into kind of the one zero bucket of tactical trading we talked about a bit earlier. And um, so, and again, you talked about the analogies, you know, the 87 crash similar to 1929. Um, you know, I think something that's influenced a lot in, in this kind of area was actually the work of Didier Sonnet. I think I've mentioned it maybe, you know, in a lot of our, our work, um, you know, in, in recent years as well, where, uh, he essentially, again, realized that there was a lot of these common patterns to how market crashes happen. And he essentially developed this, you know, LPPL, log periodic power loss um, kind of uh, trading system, if you like, to, to look for, you know, situations where potentially price action suggests there's a regime shift coming with a big uh, price crash coming. Um, so, you know, that's something where we've spent a lot of time digging into kind of how to make LPPL more practical and useful. And funnily enough, what we found was it tends to line up a lot with when the mark signals go off. So uh, it's funny. So it's really interesting you mentioned because, you know, with the analogy, with, with, with the mark signals, ultimately it ends up being the same thing, which is that there's a, you know, if you can find certain patterns of social behavior that warn of potential crashes, then um, it can be a very, very powerful thing. And indeed, I think this year, you know, it's, it's held us in really good stead, right? The, the LPPL predicted kind of the tech crash on January 11th, when the model started triggering, you know, predicted another leg of the bond crash at the beginning of April. Um, so, you know, it's, it's just looking for these patterns of social behavior that essentially uh, is, you know, the kind of thing you would see, you know, before earthquakes, right? Uh, you know, before kind of stampedes, you know, if you look at the kind of the, um, the ideas that originally inspired Sonnet to come up with this. So, yeah, so, yeah there, there's a signature. Yeah, that, that, that kind of triggers ahead of a lot of them. And I, I think the, the point is that, you know, each of these things in isolation has less value than when you kind of put them together and synthesize them into something, something bigger and more valuable. Um, on the cyclical side of things, uh, one of the, uh, the big, you know, let's, let's kind of take a look at how you guys approach, uh, your analysis of, of the business cycle and things. Um, one of the big debates, obviously, right now is about the prospect of recession. How do you begin to assess possibility of economic downturn? You know, how does your framework, I guess, uh, approach this issue? Um, 
Yeah, so again, I think that we basically do two approaches at the same time. One is what I would call um, a quadrant approach, for lack of a better word, right? It's this idea the world is somewhat continuous, so things speed up, they slow down, you go into recession recovery, right? I think that's probably more the, the world we are traditionally used to thinking about when people think of business cycles. And then alongside that, we have essentially a one-zero regime shift where things are modeled as a jump process. And so the, the way we look at it is we have um, kind of liquidity and growth leading the cases that operate according to this quadrant idea. So you're getting a sense of whether things are speeding up or slowing down in terms of growth leading the cases, in, in terms of liquidity leading the cases. But then you also have these one-zero regime shifts that ultimately, to us, what recessions are about. Um, recessions, are, you know, you, you shouldn't really be that worried if it's like a just a pure technical recession where GDP is, you know, minus 0.1 for two quarters in a row, right? Like that's not really going to break break things. The, 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 the recessions to be worried about are the more broad-based recessions where multiple parts of the economy are slowing down at the same time. They start a feedback loop into each other, which then in turn feeds into kind of financial markets, the soft data feeding the sentiment, which in turn then feeds back into kind of the hard hard data and companies start seeing smaller revenues and they have to actually lay off workers who in turn obviously then feel bad and then spend less, right? Those are the cascade self-reinforcing recessions that it's very hard to get out from. So, you know, those are the things we're trying to watch out for. So for us, we do some Bayesian uh, updating models to try and um, kind of forecast these, these jump processes. So, you know, each month we'll calculate a probability that this particular month will be judged to be a a, essentially a, a broad-based recession as the MBER would define it. And, you know, and, and so we would operate that alongside the kind of growth and liquidity LEIs. So, and obviously we're recording this in September. So, you know, right now, both the growth and the liquidity lead indicators are extremely bad. They've basically have been bad for the whole of this year. Um, but in terms of our US recession model, you know, it hasn't quite jumped. Right. So the, the risk is probably around 20 to 30 percent, depending on what day you look at it. But it's kind of not over the threshold. So that, that gives you kind of a, a sense of how, how, how we think about it. Um, you know, on our models, we think Europe and China are basically in kind of recessionary um, territory. China basically for the whole of this year already and Europe, you know, from March, April onwards. Um, so, you know, we can ha- we'll, we'll see if it, it proves to be true. Um, you know, I think the key thing to mention is in real time, the analysis of this is, is very difficult because so much economic data is, is revised, often very heavily. So most kind of most actually, yeah, I think it's fair to say most most kind of macroeconomic data releases are not that useful when you see the first release. Right. We know things get revised, but in particular turning points, they get revised potentially a lot and up to kind of three plus months later. So. Um, I think it's very, very important to actually use inputs that are minimally revised or not revised at all, which will give you kind of a much cleaner uh, a picture of what's going on. So, yeah, you know, live example today would be something like the labor markets, right? There's so much attention paid to, you know, what's non-farm payrolls, uh, you know, employment. But the reality is if you look historically at these data series going to recessions, you know, they, they tend to be very heavily revised because, you know, it, 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 it's not that real time, right? You know, if... If companies have to report the employment every month, you know, there's a delay to, to the data getting reported. There's issues with, with collecting the survey. Um, you know, there's double counting. And, and so, yeah, I think that that's something very important to emphasize as well. Um, actually doing the work to figure out what data series are useful and what isn't. And, you know, having done that, you know, there's huge swaths of economic data that we don't even touch that fills most of the news. 
um, or you know, or, or things or charts you see on Twitter. That you know, to us, I think they're helpful to get, getting an understanding ex post of what's happening. But again, in real time, you've got to be very careful. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because so many people say, well, the labor market is so strong. You know, there's no way we could be headed into recession. But I, I think in, in one of your uh, monthly or quarterly updates, you, you, you pointed out that, you know, yeah, look, look back at, you know, 2007, the real time data said, you know, labor market was still very strong and all these things. But then they revise it, you know, well after the fact so that, you know, the numbers we look at now Look like oh yeah, it was pretty obvious that recession was coming, but in real time, it wasn't so obvious. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the classic one is the you know officially U.S. recessions are dated by the MBER, um, but you know this can take up to a year, right, or, or more in the future. But again, if you're not familiar and you sit down and just go on Bloomberg and download the time series, it looks like oh this is great as a signal. <laughs> yeah, for, you know when I gotta be you know get bearish. But again, in real time, you know, you're not going to get that data until well after the fact. Well, and I'm kind of skipping ahead before that. I before I want to. I mean, you know, you have this great stock market bottom checklist, and one of the the things on the checklist is uh, you know, recession is already uh, obvious. Uh, you know, it's already kind of been obvious to to everybody. You know, by the time that happens, you know, the stock market's bottoming, right? And I think a lot of people, you know, have say to me, and it's typically, you know, retail investors and things, you know, they say, well, why not just wait until recession to, to you know, get tactically more conservative? Um, and, well, that's the time to get tactically bullish, right? Yeah, yeah I mean, that's, um, yeah, there's no, no, way to, no two ways around it. But, yeah. Um, you know, that's what, they, that's what they're saying. I can't remember who, I think maybe it was Schwarzman or someone. You know, the quote about there's, there's um, kind of aggressive, what, what's the word? They're brave, tra- they're brave investors or they're old investors, but they're right. not brave old investors. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, I think if you go through one cycle, the next time around, you'll probably be a, a, lot, a lot more cautious. Yeah. Uh, we're recording today on CPI Day. I'm going to publish this to you know, try and get it out tomorrow, but... Um, with you know CPI report out, uh, you know aside from recession, another major debate centers on inflation. Markets have been pricing in a very rapid decline in inflation over the next 12, 24 months. You guys have been suggesting that rather than a peak and rapid rollover in inflation, we're more likely to see a plateau. Why? Well, I mean, what are the indicators that you guys use to kind of uh, assess this? Uh, yeah, so. You know, inflation in general is one of the most lagging economic indicators. So, you know, again, in a normal cycle, even things like coincident growth will tend to give you a pretty good clue on inflation. Um, I think the difficult thing this time around is there is a lot of one-offs that are distorting the data quite heavily. Obviously, you know, we're aware, right, that the, the thesis is essentially, you know, everyone on Team Transitory is just focusing heavily on Things like supply chain disruptions that will normalize, you know, COVID policy things that will normalize. Um, whereas I think people on the kind of more persistent inflation are very focused on some of the structural factors, you know, end of deglobalization, uh, you know, la- labor shortage potentially coming up, wage price spiral, and so so forth. Um, to to us, I think again it goes back to the, the time horizon that matters. Um, the most predictive horizon is probably six to twelve months out, and there, you know, things like you know, you can use inputs like ISM prices paid, you know, and the like. You, know, you can use things like um, actually employment data, for example. So, like temporary employment data, for example, that gives you a pretty good lead. Um, you, know, you, you can use things like um, credit growth. Um, they tend to actually be a reasonable 
proxy for where uh, inflation is potentially going. Um, so in a normal cycle, these models tend to work well because in the normal cycle, you just have to mostly capture the changes in demand and that'll give you a pretty good sense of inflation. The challenge right now is I think on the supply side, uh, it's actually getting a lot harder to model because of all these shifts in kind of the, the geopolitical environment, shifts to supply chains. And these things are, of, you know, I think it's, it's pretty naive to assume they're going to go back to normal quickly. And so right now, because of that, even if you perfectly capture the demand side, the supply side is going to be more problematic. And I think that's probably where a lot of the um, the, the kind of at least divergences in market views are coming from. If you only look at a lot of the demand side proxies, things probably do look like they're going to roll over quite hard. Um, I think for us, our judgment would be that the supply side problems are probably not as easy to resolve as you think. Um, you know, it, it takes a long time to reorient supply chains properly. And, you know, and obviously I, I mentioned, you know, we have the whole commodity super cycle thesis, which is heavily predicated on supply. Ultimately, we live in a world that, you know, even before the Russia-Ukraine disruption, we, we lacked energy, right? We, you know, there wasn't enough food. There was all sorts of potential issues, capital scarcity that was going to come anyway. And now you've kind of, in addition to that kind of structural solvency issue, you've injected this huge if you like, like a liquidity crisis on top, right, where you actually can't get things to where they need to go, um, right, with, with all the sanctions, you know, it's, it's hard to get, get fertilizers to where they need to go, it's hard to get, get your net gas to where they need to go. So, you know, all these things coming together, which I think is inherently so much more unpredictable. Um, but, you know, all signs point to a lot of these disruptions, you know, when China does zero COVID or anything like that, right, you, you, it's probably not unreasonable to expect things to go back to normal very quickly. And I think that's the main thing that's um that makes forecasting inflation so challenging right now if you're purely demand-led you probably feel more comfortable but i think we're leaning more towards the camp that yeah there's there's a there's a lot of further supply disruption probably coming you know for example like if you look at semis right like it's such a you know hyper globalized super efficient process you know things are going to cross over borders like hundreds of times if not thousands of times right before before you can, you know, components and things get get their final spot. So, again, it, it just seems extremely naive to think that we can just go back to doing things the way they were. Um, you know, like a, a really good factoid. You know, I can't remember what I heard this, but I, I love using this. You know, the U.S. still has sanctions on Cuba today, right? That that, that just gives you a sense of how long ramifications from potentially this Russia Ukraine war and the disruptions um, could go. So. I think that's probably the main issue and why it's been so challenging for everyone to forecast um, inflation correctly. Well, with uh, you know August, the numbers coming in hot, obviously the, the plateau uh, forecast is looking a little more prescient than the, the rapid return to 2% or, or close to it that, that uh, you know, break-evens and things seem to be pointing to. Um, I think it also points to, you know, the fact that many people are just looking at the cyclical and, and they're maybe missing some of the structural drivers of inflation. You mentioned kind of a commodity super cycle. There's, you know, demographic issues that, uh, you know, Goodhart and Pradhan's book, I, I've just plugged in probably every podcast I've done because I think it's so, so important, uh, you know, the demographic component the deglobalization component, which, you know, some people appreciate, some people dismiss kind of out of hand. Uh, you know, if you're paying attention to just the cyclical and not the structural, you might be, you know, missing a, a really important part of the picture as well. Um, how do you guys, uh, I guess, balance those, those two things, the cyclical versus the structural? Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, it, it's hard, right? I think we don't have a, 
you know, uh, uh, exactly quantify way of doing it. I think we're essentially looking at cyclical models, looking at some of the, the structural indicators, but also just, you know, reading a lot about kind of history, um, you know, from, you know, something we plug all the time is kind of, you know, Bernholz's book on hyperinflation, right? That, for example, is the, is the most extreme. But, um, you know, we also track kind of global developments, you know, things like, there's not, for example, in the West, no one really talks about how important China's five-year plans are. So, you know, if, if China's previous five-year plans were all about flooding global markets with cheap widgets, right, that they're willing to sell at a loss, you know, they're willing to manufacture at, you know, at a huge cost of their own environment, then, yeah, that's why you've had, you know, durable goods deflation in the world for so long. But now China's five-year plans have changed, right? They don't want to do that anymore, right? So there's, these are a, lot, there's a lot of these kind of shifts um, that, you know, I, I think just helps us color a little bit the, uh, the way things are going. Um, and, and then obviously on top of that, you can, that helps you kind of bias a little bit of the cyclical. Um, but I, I would say, though, in, in particular, if you want to focus in on, on this month and last month's CPI print and the data, you know, the, 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 the rule of thumb way would be to really try and break inflation down to kind of essentially four pieces, right? Um, you essentially have housing, you essentially have goods, you essentially have services, and then you have food and energy, right? You can just bucket it together as kind of one piece, really. And so I think, uh, at least in a lot of the new stuff, I think there tends to be a, often just too much focus on kind of one bucket as, as if that's going to um, solve everything. Because again, historically, you know, uh, goods have just trended, right? And services, again, move slowly. So it's not being an issue. But what you're seeing right now is very divergent moves across these four different buckets. Right, goods inflation is for sure rolling over because it's very hard to sustain the kind of extreme inflation from, from previously. You know, as demand slows down a little bit, as you know, the rest of the world is in recession, and clearly, you know, uh, supply chains ease up a little bit. Not not necessarily fully, but they ease up a little bit. That goods inflation can come off. However, service inflation is picking up. Right, there's some concerns about wage price spiral. Wage growth is you know peaking, but again, it's not coming off. So that's why it leans more towards the plateau idea. If you look at housing. You know the the housing component remains very strong. We you know this is something I think we we were a bit wrong on where we thought that there would be a catch up in housing CPI originally because of the distortions to the data during the the pandemic. You know the eviction moratoriums. You know the issues with the delays in collecting the data. You know to us we thought that would you know roughly have fallen out essentially you know the last month and this month. Um, but what you also saw at the same time was just asking rents kept surging. Right. So this this was the piece where. You know, we thought that it would normalize, but if, if you're, you know, that the base effects were kicking a little bit, but because asking rents keep going higher, it's kind of also getting dragged higher. So, you know, that, that's why it's a pretty mixed picture. And overall, everyone seems very focused on just where, you know, gasoline prices are. And, you know, obviously that's been coming off. So people think inflation is fine, but in terms of the underlying trend for kind of core services, underlying trend for housing, these are actually still going. And ultimately, I think that's why, you know, the data is being somewhat of a surprise and maybe why the markets reacted so negatively now to, to this number. Well, yeah, you know, in, in, in asking you about, you know, balancing the cyclical and structural components, you know, I, I was in the back of my mind thinking about the, the commodities uh, space. You sent me a, a research piece today that I, I haven't had the chance to really dig into um, titled Lessons from the from Commodity History, Part 2. Um you know, what are the investment implications, I guess, you know, in terms of balancing cyclical versus structural, right? If we're still in a commodity super cycle, but there's cyclical headwinds to the, to the bull case, 
um, you know, I guess, how do you, how do you look at that uh, and, and kind of put those two things together? I guess balance them in terms of the, the investment uh, analysis. Um, yeah, so, well, I mean, the, the, the short answer would be it depends on how you think about your kind of core portfolio allocations versus maybe a tactical book or, you know, if you're able to trade options, maybe doing overlays. Um, but I guess in terms of if let's assume you're only going to be long only, right, or just buy only. Um, then I think it comes back to how much your fundamental structural thesis um, is still holding up. Um, you know, ultimately, when we think about structural um, investment thesis, a key part of it is this idea of the capital cycle. Again, we didn't invent this. You know, the, the best book on the capital cycle was kind of um, uh, Marathon Asset Management. And I know your previous guest and chancellor wrote the, the, the book on it, um, you know, Capital Returns. And so the, the key idea in terms of, you know, if you're looking three years out is within any capitalist system, in theory, money should move to kind of the highest, you know, marginal returns, right? And away from kind of the, the lowest marginal returns area. Um, but the way this tends to work is that things tend to overshoot. So a particular industry will get very sexy, loads of money go in, you know, generate a bunch of momentum and, you know, self-reinforcing loops and it just kind of overshoots. But then eventually the marginal return comes off because, there's too much new money in a certain area. There's too much competition. It reduces future, future profit potential. And then suddenly, you know, there's a crash and the money has to come back out and go to kind of um, areas of the economy where it's capital scarce. And obviously, we've just lived through a decade of, you know, consumer tech, right, being the, the prime example, just sucking all the capital in at the expense of kind of hardware, manufacturing, anything kind of, anything with like a big CapEx footprint, right? Because, you know, it looks like such low return business, low tangible return business, nobody wants to touch it. Um, so, you know, that's kind of the context. So when you look at commodity industries, and in particular, we're very focused on energy, it's kind of the area that's lacked investment for so long. Um, and then things like ESG and all these things that come along top to completely restrict um, capital going into the sector. And so as of right now, there's still very minimal kind of um, responses in terms of energy companies actually wanting to invest more, right, or try to increase production. And so... Because at heart, that, that core piece hasn't changed. I think that, that still makes us structurally um, very bullish. Um, and then it's just a case of maybe dialing down the risk slightly, depending on how, how concerned you are about, about the, the cyclical risk. But even there, I would say we're, we're, we're fairly relaxed. Still, right? I mean, we will probably be happy to ride through the drawdowns a bit. Um, obviously, our, our US recession model hasn't exactly triggered. But just, just bear in mind, right, if this is going to be a commodity-induced recession, then historically, you've had recessions where commodities can rally through, right? You've had, you know, you know, 73, 1980, these are commodity-driven recessions. And so commodities actually do fine because actually the rest of the economy is forced to adjust, right? It's, it's the economy leads to inflation, forces out purchasing power everywhere else, and all the other sectors suffer. And, you know, it's not unreasonable to think that something like that could potentially be set up. Uh, this time around as well, even if you were to balance the cyclical and the structural. So, um, yeah, to, to us, I think the, the, the risk very much remains to the upside in terms of energy because it's just so inelastic and there's just a lot of uh, disruption potential. Um, not obviously, it will be very volatile, um, but structurally, that's kind of where we are. Um, we do attempt to try and correct for the, the, the demand side, but again, if, beyond like some of our more tactical or, you know, uh, high frequency trading clients or people with like a fairly tight drawdown limit. Broadly, uh, you know, I think we're not too concerned. But if you 
if you only have, say, a one to two month horizon where you need to worry about your drawdown on that horizon, then um, I, I do think right now it is probably worth dialing down the risk a bit and um, and just um, and just wait to, to see the kind of recession signal go off, wait to see the Fed kind of hike us into a recession. And then after that, uh, for, for things to kind of wash through the system and eventually policymakers start easing. And that'll be a point at which to kind of reestablish, um, reestablish kind of the long again. Yeah, I think it's, you know, there's some recency bias involved too in, in people's ideas of recession, right? In the last two, right, the, the COVID recession, we saw nominal growth decline pretty significantly for a short period of time. 2008-9, we saw nominal growth go negative also. But if you look back to the 70s last time, you know, inflation was a problem. We had, you know, three recessions from 1969 to 84 or something, four recessions technically. And nominal growth never fell below 3%. For most of the time, even during the 74 recession, nominal growth stayed 7 8%. And so it's like you can have the economy growing nominally at, at, at you know, pretty strong levels. But, uh, you know, so I guess that it, it kind of uh, goes to, I, I guess, it contradicts people's idea of what recession means when inflation is running as high as it is today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Ultimately, there's very few things that are, are brand new and history does rhyme. So even the COVID recession, right, that was a pretty good historical analog to kind of 1927 uh, recession, which was kind of, you know, a very similar, you know, policy driven recession, right? Obviously, COVID was just lockdowns everywhere. But in 27, it was, you know, Henry Ford shutting down his factories to switch from building the Model T to the Model A. But because, you know, Ford was such a big part of the economy, it was all the kind of linked, uh, you know, like, subsidiary or like you know linked um services or the downstream yeah it actually like caused like a huge shock to the system so you know with all these things you can find actually like some historical guidance and i think the problem for today is given the given the just how bad the the structural supply deficit you know at least to us looks and how little of a response you've had it seems more likely it's going to fit into kind of these commodity induced um Right, so it's either going to be a commodity-induced recession, or it's just the policymakers would really have to be very, you know, preemptive and completely trying to destroy demand um, before before that kicks in. Right, either way, it's, it's not particularly good. Yeah. Well, we have to get to the your market uh, bottom checklist because this is something you sent me a couple of months ago, and and I've never seen something. You know, I mean, it seems like everybody every research firm kind of puts out one of these you see the big sell side uh firms put them out but you know they maybe have 10 things on them and, and yours is the most exhaustive one i've ever seen it's fascinating how did this project come about first of all um yeah so you know as i said earlier you know this idea of man plus machine i think to us you know that doesn't just mean take any data input and, and try to you know fit models to it you know, I think it also means being very empirical in our approach, essentially evidence-based. So, you know, the idea originally was to, you know, try and find all the situations of what market bottoms actually look like, right? Both through inflationary periods and deflationary periods and see if there's any common themes that came out of it. Because, you know, you st as you said, right, there's a lot of information out there and everything sounds intuitive. And we were just curious, again, in real time, what, what could you have observed and is it actually trackable? Right. And, you know, is it, is it just a finger in the air? You know, you know, a lot of these things you, you typically hear about market bottoms, you know, people say like, oh, sentiment's really bad. Right. Like it, it's not precisely defined. So 
I think we, we really want to go back and figure out, is there a, a cleaner way to define things um, that is evidence-based? That also means then, you know, going forward, we, we can have a, a reasonable symbol for it. So that was kind of the original idea. And, and I think we've been working on this variously over the history of the firm. And obviously, we've gone for a few more kind of, you know, major crashes and market bottoms since we started doing this. And so, you know, typically there are a few kind of common themes that, that tend to come out. And I think the, the most important, as, you know, as I put right up front, is it's, it's extremely rare for markets to bottom without kind of policy easing, right? Not, not just that backing off from hikes, but, but you know, monetary policy is actually being eased, right? That there's a, there is a, a slowdown in progress and, and policymakers are worried. Um, you know, I think Michael Hartner of Amo has a great line on this where he says, um, markets stop panicking uh, when policymakers start panicking. Right, which is, I guess, another way of saying this. But, you know, that's like, for example, a very common theme. So, you know, if, say, the market's already bottomed this time around and this is the beginning of the bull, it would, be, it would literally be like one of the first times that policymakers uh, haven't panicked and yet the market's bottom, right? So there's a lot of these examples where, you know, we have data going back to the 66 bottom. So, you know, at this point, it's like like probably 10, something like that. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, you, you can get a good sense of what does this make sense. Yeah. And, yeah. Well, I was just going to say, you know, it, it's a really great point about, you know, policymakers, because one of the, the bullet points you have on your checklist is Fed easing for at least six to 12 months. I think many people seem to think that market bottoms coincide with a pivot, you know, kind of like they did in 2018. But that's that example um, is is more of the uh, exception to the rule than what you typically see in bear markets, which is you know during the the dot com bust, right? Fed was easing for a long period of time before stocks bottomed. Same thing in the financial crisis, and so people are looking to any sign for the potential Fed's going to back off, as that might be a, a sign for the stock market to bottom. But uh, that that's, that might not be the case. Yeah, I think, you know, this, this Fed pivot sensitivity is only really being a more recent kind of decade situation. And often it's because it's happened kind of uh, without a broad-based economy-wide recession, right? So obviously in 18, the, the pivot worked pretty quickly. Um, obviously, you know, when, when, uh, when it was Bernanke and they were trying, uh, you know, in the kind of the original QE2, QE3, you know, Draghi, whatever it takes, right? I think these things are, are very prominent investors' minds. Which is why I think there's the sense that, oh, as soon as you, you get a pivot, that, that, that's, that will be followed through and then the market responds. But ultimately, I think the issue is most of these things have come against a backdrop of actually still okay liquidity conditions, certainly not, not so much inflation, right? Like all, all these things um, essentially happened during the low inflation era where stock bonds were positively correlated. And then also, so even if you were fully invested going in, uh, you know, on the sale of your bonds probably did rally. So, you you know, you could switch some of that out. You have some ammo to buy in the market and, and the market goes back up, right? Um, I think the big challenge today is there's been nowhere to hide, right? Bonds are down, equities are down. Um, you know, if you're a vol trader, you, you know, vol has monetized pretty for, poorly this year, right? And obviously, it's a synchronized global hiking cycle that's pushed most of our liquidity indicators down to kind of 30-year-plus lows, Um and by the way, you know, they've been there for, for a while, right? And they started collapsing basically from uh, four, fourth quarter last year already. Um, so, you know, that's kind of more the context in which, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to think about this bear market, right? So this is much more of a bear market that fits into a, a genuine kind of recessionary market crash 
um, that that you know you mentioned that we see historically rather than just a you know a, a short term phenomenon um, that you know like a twenty eighteen style kind of quick one where the underlying you know mechanisms haven't haven't kind of fully broken right where you know there's still money to come in on the sidelines. I think the concern now is that liquidity conditions are, are probably so bad because you know inflation all these things are eating into it that even if you pivot, you would need some kind of really, really major intervention before you actually generate enough excess liquidity to actually flow to flow back into markets. Right. It, you know, it seems to me the main argument right, right now for, for the bull case is essentially there'll be a short squeeze of people are pretty underweight. Right. That that's kind of the argument or that sentiment is too bearish. But I think in, if you look at aggregate, the global aggregate system in terms of money creation, um, you know, that, that money doesn't necessarily have to go in the Going to going to the stock markets, right? Going to asset prices, right? That money can be used up by the real economy, can be used up in inflation. And right now, the issue is that inflation in the real economy eating up a lot of it is such that there isn't any excess to support asset prices. And it looks like it could be a while uh, before you generate positive excess liquidity again. So, you know, I, I think that that's the broader context in why we are choosing to focus in on these kind of more lengthy um, kind of historical bear markets. Yeah. Well, and I love that the checklist spans. I mean, it's got tactical components, cyclical and, and structural kind of, it encompasses all three so that, uh, you know, it, it kind of just demonstrates how, how you guys put these things together into a larger framework. You know, you, you've uh, written in, in the report that not enough of these have, have triggered yet to be confident about um, uh, you know, a major stock market bottom, um, you know, and so I, I'm just, uh, it's interesting to me to see how the tactical fit with some of the cyclical and other things, because you talk about, you know, Fed needs to be easing. We also need to see that in, in the yield curve, right? You need to see the yield curve has been steepening for months. You need to see, um, you know, like I mentioned before, the recession has actually been declared and the news is stale, um, but then, you know, there's also tactical things like, uh, long-term oversold, uh, you know, in terms of RSI and things. Um, uh, what, what are some of the, the things that, you, you know, I guess maybe one or two of these things that you'd be most, uh, curious to see that would maybe, uh, really get you thinking like, okay, maybe, maybe we are closer to a bottom, um, uh, today. Yeah, sure. Um. In my mind, at least, I think the most important thing is that we see the bond market behave as it should at the bottom, which is you first get a bond rally on the recession scare. And then once it's obvious there's a recession, um, policymakers typically start easing. And then in response to the easing, the yield curve actually steepens, right? So sorry, the, the rally reverses, but also the curve steepens. So generally, you should expect to see curve steepening, as you mentioned, in response to policy easing. At the same time, bonds should have a big risk-off recession scare rally first, and then that, that kind of um, unwinds. So that would be like a, a live market confirmation. Um, on the economic side, I think it's really important to see um, consumer expectations relative to present conditions really start to pick up. Uh, we're seeing it a little bit right now on the, the Michigan surveys, but not so much on the conference board surveys. Um, you know, it's still probably in the range of you know, just normal vol. Um, I think the, the the Michigan survey tends to be a bit more financial situation based, whereas the conference board has, I think, some more economic inputs. But you know, ideally, you want to see that pick up, you know, start to pick up a bit more because you know we tend to observe observe things like that um, at, at the bottom ahead of time. So you know, those are probably the the main ones that 
you know, I'm looking to see if that's being a, a shift. Otherwise, I think, you know, obviously the world is a bit different today, but certainly if China, if, if our China area actually bottoms, that, that would actually be pretty helpful as a cyclical indicator. I think that the problem is our China indicator just keeps making new lows, as it has done for you know, the whole this year, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, without that, and obviously China's a big piece now as well, that, that's kind of that's kind of going to be a problem. So, yeah, me- mentally, I think our minds, you know, the, the bond, I think if you just if you just watch the bond markets, I'll give you a lot of useful information. Um, obviously, if, um, you know, going back to maybe the 84 analogy I mentioned earlier, you know, what you saw back then was inflation actually peaked. And then the central banks told you that it's peak. And then they tell you, they are peak hawkish policy, right? And then, and then, and then uh, bonds can can start to, uh, and then yields basically can start coming off, right? And the equities can start rallying. And so, you know, this year we obviously the market keeps trying to front run it, but um, you know, it's it's not easy to front run when there's been a, such a, a, a shift in, uh, in kind of the, the 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 environment. You know, even today, I think you know we're putting a, a really great quote from like the the Bundesbanker from um, 1989. Where they talk about how, you know, why they kept, um, even though it was reunif- German reunification, um, you know that that in theory you need to support growth in East Germany, right? Support the rebuilding effort. The Bundesbank kept a pretty con- uh, contractory monetary policy, and they were just saying, you know, that was a response to kind of environment where you you go environment where you had years of easy liquidity. Right, that's led to kind of lots of excesses, and the currency is being weak, and they're going to start importing inflation. And so, it's important to kind of get get a hold of that first and maintain credibility. And you know, that seems that seems to be more where where the world we're at um, today. Right, central banks, certainly developed market central banks. You know, the history as you know, history rhymes, but it's never exactly the same. But I'm sure today, central bankers all know all about the history. Of loss of credibility in EM central banks, right? All the seventies. Right. I'm fairly sure none of them want a repeat of that. So, you know, inflation credibility is probably quite high up. And also, today central banks probably talk to each other a lot more than they did historically. You know, in sixteen there were the rumors of Shanghai Accord. You know, in, in the financial crisis we saw, you know, these joint swap lines where you know the Fed was obviously giving dollar swap lines to to the other DM central banks. You know, there's probably more of a concerted attempt to really establish policy credibility then. Than uh, people think, right? It, um, so, yeah. So until that, until they reestablish that, it, it, there probably isn't going to be much of easing. And without it, it be, it would not fit the historical pattern in terms of what a, a genuine market bottom looks like. Now, this doesn't mean we necessarily have to crash another fifty percent, right? It could just be equity markets just stuck here, and we just trade sideways for a while, and there's just lots of headline risk. Um, you know, that could happen. But so the way I think about using this is it's trying to tell me when I can very aggressively buy and then sleep at night for the next two years, right? Mm-hmm. When, when I'm happy to be like basically full max long and, and not worry about it too much. And so, you know, with these missing pieces, you know, I'll be pretty uncomfortable just going, going a, a max long here. Right. Well, yeah. And, and, you know, a sideways market, um, you know, would be still a kind of out of line with uh, bear market precedents. You have a, uh, you know, a slide in your your latest uh, piece that you sent me about, um, you know, bear markets consistently show an acceleration into the final sell-off. And, and it's it's that kind of a, a move um, that would inspire panic in the sense, you know, in the, in the uh, in monetary policy, a major shift that would actually probably 
get people, you know, uh, buying bonds again, see the, the long end come down, you know, that, that would, uh, you know, be required to see kind of a, a typical bear market low that would be in line with history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, again, you know, what we try and do is, is do empirical research. And, mm-hmm. you know, and again, most of the time, you should expect to see an acceleration. So yeah. if, if it's missing this time, it would be uh, quite rare. Yeah. Well, I, I I really thank you for taking the time to do this, Tian. It's been fascinating to to dig into your research for the past few years, and uh, a real pleasure to be able to to take you you know to, to to pick your mind about a lot of this stuff. It's especially relevant to what's going on uh, in the markets today. And I think you know if you are a passive investor, you're missing. You know, you're absolutely just ignoring a lot of these things that are that potentially represent paradigm shifts uh, across markets and economies. Um, setting all that stuff aside, I'm curious to know, do you have any hobbies or interests outside of the markets that uh, maybe have made you a better investor or have informed your work in any way? Um, yeah, although, I mean, this, this answer is given quite a lot, but I think just reading, yeah. reading a lot. Um, you know, also, I, again, I think... The, ultimately, I think maybe the reason we all ultimately, once you get into finance investing, you stick to it is, um, you know, maybe this is Charlie Munger again, right? Like knowledge is cumulative in finance. And so the more you read, the more you learn, and then the more they, they compile upon each other. And eventually, you know, you know stuff across a broad swath of things that, you know, you can start to kind of connect the dots and see the picture. So, yeah, I think reading, um, you know, these days, obviously, you know, we're calling podcasts, a lot of great kind of podcasts out there as well, just across tons of things that, could be relevant to to ultimately how you make an investing decision, right? Like, you know, something, you know, podcasts like Founders and a lot of these are really, really high quality, right? Where he is essentially reading the book and then telling you about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, reading a lot and just being genuinely curious probably has, has helped a lot to try and come up with some of these um, connect the dot type uh, things. Well, that's, you know, uh, was one of the inspirations for this podcast was, uh, you know, the art of worldly wisdom comes from Charlie Munger. And, and obviously, he's a, an avid reader and, and uh, has been an advocate for kind of putting together, um, you know, taking various disciplines and using them to kind of inform your work in, in whatever your primary work is. So I, I absolutely um, and am in support of that and applaud that. Tian, before I let you go, where can people keep up with you and your ideas? Uh, sure. So, you know, variantperception.com is the main website. Uh, we have a blog. We're on Twitter. Uh, we don't tend to probably get into any kind of the uh, the the... the you know, the Twitter fights or anything like that, we'll try and post charts we think are interesting. And our blog, we'll try and share a few kind of themes or, or you know, framework ideas. Um, and I think for institutional investors, uh, family office and the like, obviously we provide a kind of full service um, uh, kind of product in terms of selling research, but also data, um, you know, consulting work, um, providing data fees, providing indicators um, and the like. So, um, you know, that's kind of the, the what pays the bills. But, you know, I think it, it's important for us as well just to, you know, share with the world our philosophy. So, you know, you can find us all, you know, as I mentioned, go to the website and, and you can take it from there. Well, I'm a huge fan. I, I've been following uh, the Twitter feed and the blog for a very long time. I recommend everybody check it out because it's just, you guys put up uh, on a regular basis, very valuable uh, information. So, um, Tian, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Uh, I'm, I'm really grateful to you. No, Jesse, I've been a big fan of your work. So, yeah, absolutely very happy to uh, to come on and 
yeah, look forward to uh, staying connected in the future. And that does it for another episode of Super Investors and the Art of Worldly Wisdom. As always, you can find notes and links related to this episode at thefelderreport.com. Thank you for listening, and until next time, buy low, sell high. Man looks in the abyss. There's nothing staring back at him. At that moment, man finds his character. And that is what keeps him out of the abyss.